We're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, speaking about the spirituality of God, which Wayne Grudem defines in his systematic theology. Uh, says, God's spirituality means that God exists as a being that is not made of any matter, has no parts or dimensions, is unable to be perceived by our bodily senses, and is more excellent than any other kind of existence. And if you want a proof text for that, John 4.24, Jesus speaking, he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So God is spirit. God is non-corporeal. He does not have a body. We talked about how the spirituality of God means that God cannot be seen or perceived with with physical eyes uh, because he has no physical form. And so John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So nobody has ever seen uh, God the Father. Now, I asked at the end if there were any questions, and I was really hoping somebody would ask about Moses. Uh, because if there's one if there's one story in the Old Testament that seems to cut against this, it would be Moses uh, beholding God's face. And so Exodus 33:11, we're going to look at this in some detail. Exodus 33 verse 11 says, "Thus, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend." Uh, when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And then verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Verse 19, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Okay, so when we get to the next chapter, when it seems like Moses sees God's glory, Just understand he's not beholding God's face because God explicitly says in the previous chapter, you can't see my face and live. So however we are to understand uh, the account of Moses seeing God's glory, uh, there is still something veiled there. He is not actually beholding God face to face in that way. Uh, Verse 21, the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Um, so that's, that's the best description that we have of that account, is that God covered Moses' uh, you know, eyes so he could not see him until he passed by. And whatever Moses saw, I think of it as like the afterglow of God as he's moving past him. Um, Sort of like, you know, in the Old Testament, it speaks of how God's train filled the temple. Uh, The train is is like a a wedding dress, that long part that goes behind. So it's sort of as God's leaving, there's this afterglow, and that's what Moses seems to have seen. Uh, Exodus 34, uh, verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tables of the testimony in his hands as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Uh, skipping down to verse 33, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Uh, when, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. 
And Moses would put a veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. So Moses had a very unique relationship with God, for sure. Uh, He was allowed to see something of God's glory, though he did not see God. Nobody has ever seen God. Nobody can see God and live, he says. But uh, whenever Moses saw that manifestation of the glory of God, the afterglow as he passed by, uh, he caught a glimpse of that, and it was enough to make his face shine. So every time Moses would commune with God, whether it be on Mount Sinai or in the tabernacle, whatever the case would be, uh, his face would be glowing, apparently so powerfully that people couldn't look at him. And so they put this veil over his face to, uh, to shade the people from that. And that's just the after, sort of like the moon reflecting the sunlight. Um, so that gives you a glimpse of what, what it means that nobody can look at God. We cannot see God now, but someday we will be spiritual like him, and then we will see him as he is. Matthew verse 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we can't see God and live in our physical existence. Uh, but in the future, when, whenever we are converted and given our glorified body, whatever that looks like, uh, we will be able to actually behold God. 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So uh, the argument that John uses there is we know we're going to be spiritual and not with our physical limitations we have now because of the fact that we'll be able to see God face to face. And so that would be another argument for the spirituality of God, that God is spirit, and someday we will be spirit like him and, and able to actually see him. Part of the hope of the Christian is that one day we will be like God and we'll be able to see God. And you see that in verse 3 there, that everybody that has this hope. What hope? Well, the hope of being able to see God face-to-face. The scene in Revelation 22, uh, this is toward the end of the book of Revelation, the very last chapter, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. That would be us. They will see His face, His name will be on their foreheads, uh, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And So that's what Uh, Part of what our existence in heaven is going to be like. We'll be able to see God as he is, uh, and the light of God's glory is going to uh, illuminate basically the entire, whatever whatever, uh, your conception of heaven and the new earth and things of that nature, there is no sun involved. It's just the light of God's glory shining. And so that is uh, one of those things I don't think we can really conceive of or understand what that's going to be like, uh, but that is a part of the future of the Christian. Any questions? on the spirituality of God before we move on, or anything you'd like to discuss further. I don't think that's correct, Um, because John says we will see him as he is. Um, 
So no, I think we will see God. Now I do, I have heard, I think R.C. Sproul used to say this, that um, even in heaven, we will still not fully understand God. I, I can't prove that, but I, my suspicion is that's correct. That, God, that the incomprehensibility of God is not just due to our finiteness as humans, but to his infiniteness as God. And nothing would change when we're in heaven. We're still, infant, we're still, not, we're, we're still not up to God's level just because we're in his presence. Um, so I don't believe we'll be able to fully understand God even in heaven, there will still be aspects that are shaded to our vision. But as far as being able to see him, no, I, I mean, as far as I can read scripture, it seems like we will. So, yes, Diana? Are you saying like will we recognize each other? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of a verse that says there's not male or female. I know there's a verse that says Jesus speaking to the Sadducees that um, there's no marriage in heaven. I'm not sure that there's no male or female. There may be. Oh, oh, okay. That's speaking. That's not speaking of the eternal state. That's speaking of now. Um, that in Christ, those distinctions don't matter anymore. So between Jew and Gentile, male and female, servant and master, Colossians three. Um, so no, I, I, as far as I know, we will still be male and female in heaven. There just won't be any marriage. Um, now, as far as our recognition of one another, uh, there's a couple of things. First of all, I'm not sure how much we'll care. I know that sounds weird to us, but um, I, I do believe being in God's presence is going to bring fulfillment that we can't even imagine. And so, uh, you know, this is one of those things I've even struggled with, thinking about the fact that I won't be married to Catherine in heaven. Um, that seems really sad to me, <laughs> that, that I won't have that relationship anymore. You know, how can heaven be perfect if I can't have that thing that is, you know, the most precious relationship, obviously, I have on earth? And yet, uh, in heaven, there is total satisfaction. And so that means whatever void I feel like I would have there, God will fill it and, and even surpass. Uh, you know. And so in other words, Paul uses the relationship of marriage throughout the New Testament as a, an image of what the church's relationship to God will be. Right? We are the bride of Christ, will be presented to God uh, in our glorified state in heaven. So... The, the human institu institution of marriage at its best, all of the good things that are there, is just a glimmer of what our relation to God will be in eternity. And so we shouldn't think, um, you know, of our human friendships as, boy, I'm going to really miss that if it's not the same in heaven. I don't think we will. Uh, I'm not saying it's not going to be the same. I'm just saying I think our, our focus will be on God, and that will be a far more satisfying and, and pleasurable uh, existence than anything we can imagine now. Now, that being said, that's not to say that we won't know each other in heaven. Um, Paul speaks in, first, I think it's First Thessalonians, about the fact that when Christ returns, uh, we will be reunited with loved ones who had passed away. 
And so that seems to me to indicate that, yes, we will still have those relationships. We will see them again, but it's not just going to be a passing high as we go to be with God. I think, I think there will still be fellowship with even people that we knew on earth in heaven. I'm just not sure it's, it's going to be exactly the same as we experience it now. Does that make sense? Um, as far as us being able to see one another, uh, yeah, I, I think we will. We're going to be changed into some sort of glorified body, but there's not, there's not a whole lot of uh, information about what that all looks like. Uh, the best picture we have is Jesus. When Jesus was resurrected, he clearly was not the same, so he could walk through walls. We see that, him entering locked rooms and things. Um, so he had some sort of a glorified body there. Uh, the road to Emmaus story, where he's breaking bread and then all of a sudden he disappears. Um, so he wasn't in his normal physical existence. At the same time, the disciples did recognize him. Um, when he entered that room with the twelve, they knew who he was. So, so even in the glorified state, they were still able to know who he was. Now, the road to Emmaus is a different situation. But. Right, so I guess my point is, even though we will have a glorified body, um, I don't know if we're going to look similar or, or what, but somehow we, I, I do believe we'll be able to recognize one another in heaven. So, Malachi, did you have a question? Okay. Right. Yeah, the glorified body is an interesting thing in Scripture because you see, like I said, Jesus walking through walls and disappearing and appearing at random places. Then you also see him eating fish after his resurrection. Um, so he still needed food, <laughs> and yet he had this sort of, it's sort of like a, a halfway spiritual, halfway physical body. I, I don't know how else to describe it. So um, whatever that looks like, it, you know, I mean, John says in First John 3, that passage we just read, uh, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Okay, so we don't, we don't really know. <laughs> but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So there's definitely some unanswered questions there. Um, but the, point, the broader point that John is making is we will be able to see God uh, in some sort of real physical sense uh, in our glorified bodies. Any other questions on spirituality before we move on? Okay. Uh, next is the personality of God. Uh, the personality of God. God is personal, meaning he has a mind, a will, and emotions. So God is not uh, a force. Okay, God is not, um, he, he is personal. We'll, we'll see more of this as we go along. There are some theologians and some that I would respect who, ha who advocate for a doctrine known as impassibility which says that God does not experience emotions. And basically this is built upon um, their understanding of immutability, that God can't change. Uh, they would view emotions as a change. And so when you go from being angry to being happy or whatever, when you experience those emotions, that's a change in your being. Uh, and thus, <clears throat> God being unchangeable means 
he does not have emotions. I don't agree with that, and I'm going to explain why. Um, for one thing, I think, and we'll get to this more when we talk about immutability, I think sometimes we take that doctrine to an extreme. Uh, I think God does change. Now, there's certain ways in which he doesn't change. So he, his being doesn't change. His character doesn't change. His attributes don't change. However, he clearly changes in some ways. Uh, like I said, I mean, he goes from being angry to being happy. Uh, he experiences that change in emotion. Um, so, so while there is <clears throat> a certain way in which I think it's obviously right to understand God does not change, I don't think we should take that to the extreme to say that nothing about God is ever different at one point in time than another. I don't know if that makes sense. We're going we're gonna to ex expound that more when we get to immutability. Uh, but on the personality of God, I do believe God has real emotions, um, not that they're necessarily like our emotions, but I do believe he, he experiences uh, emotions. Uh, okay, let's see here. Um, before we get to these scriptures, maybe just to elaborate on that point a little bit about the difference between our emotions and God's. I don't believe God is controlled by his emotions, like we often are. Uh, we are surprised, we're confused, things like that, that, that can cause emotions in us. God's passions are, are real, but he's not ruled by them in the same way. So God is never surprised. He knows everything in the future. He's never confused. He understands everything perfectly. However, just because he knows something's about to happen doesn't mean he doesn't get angry when it happens. So the, that emotion is still real, uh, even though it may even be a part of God's will that it take place. Okay, so, so Jesus dying on the cross was clearly uh, part of God's will and part of God's decree. However, I think, I think there was still, it's right to say that, that there was an emotion there, that he wasn't uh, just stoically watching as his son was crucified. So anyway, um, let's get some scriptures on this. Uh, first of all, and I have several points here about God's emotions. Number one, God delights. Psalm 147, verse 10, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor His pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. So God takes pleasure, and in this verse specifically, in those of us who are trusting Him and, uh, and relying on His love. <clears throat> Number two, God rejoices at times. Isaiah 62, verse 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So God rejoices. Number three, God sings. This may be a new one for you. Zephaniah 3:17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Okay, so God sings. Number four, God is moved to pity. <clears throat> and this would be an example of why, where, where I think uh, our understanding of immutability can go too far. Okay, God can be moved to pity. So there is some sort of change, at least in his emotions. Um, that's not to say there's a change in his character or in his, uh, in his will. But God is moved to pity. Judges 2.18, <clears throat> whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. 
because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So this is speaking of Israel. Uh, you see this cycle in the book of Judges, I think seven times, where Israel is under captivity and they cry out to God. And they say, will you please you know, rescue us from these people that are oppressing us? And God is moved to pity. And so he does, he does act on their behalf. Uh, another example of that would be, of course, in Exodus, the, the story of them in Egypt, same sort of principle, that they were under bondage in Egypt, and God saw that and was moved to compassion for that. Uh, number five, God is grieved at times. Psalm 78, verse 40, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. There's many verses we could look at on that, uh, the grieving of the Holy Spirit and so forth. Uh, number six, God laughs. <clears throat> Psalm 2, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. There it's actually uh, kind of a mocking laugh about the enemies of God, that he's laughing at them. But uh, verse uh, number seven, God becomes angry at times. Uh, many texts we could look at here, but Exodus 32, verse 9, The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a, uh, a great nation of you. Uh, number eight, God becomes jealous, and specifically when his people desert him and begin to worship other gods. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So again, as far as the immutability of God, we have to do something with that statement that God was provoked to anger by his people abandoning him and worshiping other idols. So uh, I think that's a pretty open and shut case to say God does indeed have emotions. Uh, God displays dispositions and emotions appropriate to interpersonal relationships. Um, now, I know uh, the Westminster Confession says God is without passions, speaking of this idea that God does not have emotions. I just think that's simply wrong. Um, and if you want just one proof text of God's changing emotions depending on circumstances, Isaiah 54 says, For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And so there you see this interesting uh, comparison between God and uh, basically an angry wife who leaves her husband in his anger, in her anger, and then as time goes on, begins to feel that love again and wants to reconcile. And that's what the image that God uses for himself. So God has emotions, and I think emotions are good. Uh, it's a part of what it means to be made in God's image. We get our emotions from God. That is a part of God's existence that he has bestowed to us as humans. Uh, one final note on the emotions of God. Uh, God's emotions are consistent with his character. We're not going to take time to trace this in Scripture, but uh, and this is where I, I hold immutability and God's emotions in tandem with one another. God is always angry at sin, and he always has compassion on the repentant. Um, so in other words, God's emotions are predictable. They're not like ours. Sometimes our emotions are illogical uh, or unfair or inconsistent. God has emotions, but they are regulated by his character so that he is always feeling the appropriate emotion 
for the time. Uh, we're not taking time to go to Exodus 34, but that's a good place to, uh, to look at for this, where God tells Moses, I am, uh, <clears throat> I'm trying to remember now how, how he words it, uh, but speaking of the fact that he's, he's always angry at sin, but he's always compassionate toward people who obey him. And so there's a consistency even in the emotional changes of God, that, that his emotions, in other words, they are consistent with the circumstances. Um, God is angry at sinners, and God is compassionate on those who repent. And there is a, a consistency to his emotional state. Uh, any questions on that? We're going to move on to a couple other points on this, but any other questions? Go ahead. For okay. Yeah, the idea, I think, for most people is <clears throat> that if God changes in any way, he is either going from a better to a worse or a worse to a better, which is obviously logically impossible for God to, to do. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it would be wrong of God not to be angry at sin. I think it would be... Uh, so, so in other words, some, I think there is an appropriateness <clears throat> in some degree of change based upon certain circumstances that are taking place. Um, I'm not sure if I clarified that very much, but um, yeah, I, I, I just don't see... <clears throat> Again, we'll, we'll talk about more when we get to immutability. I don't want to teach all of that right now, but I would say immutability should be defined very specifically, that God does not change with respect to his being um, or his character, his attributes never change. Uh, and God never changes his mind, so his will never changes. Um, I think those are important things to, to clarify, but that's not to say that God never changes in any sort of sense. Um, so yeah, I think that's all I want to say on that. <clears throat> Next point, on the personality of God. God has intellect. So we've seen already God has emotions, now God has intellect. He knows and understands himself and his creation. 
Uh, this is obvious to most of us, but just one text on this, Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? So God has intellect, God has emotions, and then next and lastly, God has a will. God acts with a sense of purpose and plan. Uh, in other words, he, he does, like all of us, he thinks about what he wants to do and then sets in motion a plan to accomplish that. Creation and redemption were actions that God took for his glory. Isaiah 43, verse 7, and we'll just see how God plans things in order to bring glory to himself. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Uh, so there you see creation is for the glory of God. We'll talk about that more in the next hour. Uh, Ephesians 1, verse 5, this is talking more about salvation, redemption. Uh, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So God plans things. He has desires and then plans how to make them happen. Uh, Jeremiah 29.11, here's a famous verse for you. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And I need to point this out every time I read this verse. This is not a promise made to you or me. Uh, this is a promise made to Israel in exile. Um, so Jeremiah is telling them, you're about to go into exile. You're going to be uh, captured by Babylon and carried away for 70 years. But, God says, I'm not going to abandon you. I have plans for you to bring you back to the land and to give you prosperity when you arrive back. So there's a, a future and a hope for Israel. I'm not done with you, in other words. Uh, and we've already seen this a couple of weeks ago. Cyrus giving them the funds and the ability to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. That's what he's talking about here in Jeremiah 29. Um, so this is one of those verses that gets cross-stitched cross on pillows and put up on signs and homes all the time. And it has nothing to do with you or I. Um, God's plans for us may not be this. <laughs> uh, God's plans, in fact, for Jeremiah was not this. Jeremiah spent much of his life in jail um, and was brutally treated for his prophecies. So sometimes God's plans uh, are for you to prosper, and other times it's, it's not. Um, think, of, think of the Apostle Paul being beheaded at the end of his life. Um, so this is not a general promise made to everyone, although that's how a lot of Christians tend to think of it. This is made specifically for Israel. But you see here that God has a plan, and he's talking about that here. I have um, a plan specifically, and, and in the future, I'm going to do this after you're in exile. So God is personal. He has a mind, he has a will, and he has emotions. He relates. God enters into relationships with other persons, uh, not only with us, obviously, as his people, uh, but also with himself. And that's why uh, Trinitarian theology is so fascinating to me to study the uh, the different implications of the triune God, but God relates <clears throat> even within the Trinity to the other person. So uh, the Father and the Son and the Spirit uh, relate to one another as distinct persons. We'll see that more in a few weeks when we get to the Trinity. Uh, but God enters into relationships with other persons. He makes covenants. He hears prayers. He blesses the obedient. He judges the rebellious. All of these are evidences of the personality of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we as humans love, hate, think, feel, laugh, sing, grieve, etc. God does all of those things as well because he is personal. 
And we've seen several scriptures on those things. When we talk to God through prayer, we should understand that he is a person and not just a supreme being or an impersonal power. Uh, We can talk to God as our father and as our friend because he is. Any other questions on personality? That's, I think that's as far as I want to go um, this morning. Any questions? Well, you all are quiet this morning. Anything? <clears throat> go ahead. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and and um, it it would be a change in God's in God's character if His emotions were not consistent. So, in other words, if He was happy with sin one day and angry the next day. Well, that would be a problem. <laughs> that would be a legitimate change in his character and his disposition towards sin. Uh, but the fact that God's emotions are consistent is actually an affirmation of his immutability, that he responds predictably and consistently uh, to various things. Um, there's one more thing I wanted to say about immutability before we moved on, but I, I can't remember off the top of my head. No, 